Welcome to the August edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we discuss the future happenings at the Metro Cinema in Edmonton, Alberta, and if possible, how that relates to cinema in a broader context. Throughout the show, you'll be hearing a cacophony of wonderful music from Soft Ions, Leonard J. Paul, Matthew Belton of Mangled Tapes, in a variety of guises, Pigeon Breeders, Boosh, and whoever else I can find. And it gives me great pleasure to say that we are now officially a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Give all of yourselves a pat on the back. Uh, My name is Owen Armstrong. I'm a projectionist at Metro Cinema, as well as the co-host of the Metro Cinema Movie Trivia at the Tavern on White. Joining me today is this one. Hello, I'm William. Yes. And... Oh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, I scoop corn. That's correct, yeah. Yep. Yep. Hi, I'm uh, Nick. I am a former... Uh, front of house manager at Metro and a current projectionist. Yeah, that one. That one there. Hey, I'm Heather. I am the chair of the programming committee and the vice president of the Metro board. And that one. I'm Talisha. I'm the communications specialist and the front of house manager. Beautiful. Welcome, everybody. Specialist <laughs> makes it sound so cool. It does, doesn't it? it? Does. We're all specialists. We're all special. <laughs> <laughs> we're does all... that mean none of us are special? Uh, no, we're all special. Oh, I see. Nobody I see. else is. <laughs> Good. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's dig in. And uh, so we've got a brand new one, An Elephant Sitting Still. Yeah. Yeah, directed by Hubo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Heather and Will, you're both uh, interested in it. Yeah. 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 I'm excited. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I don't know a whole lot about it. No. Well, no one really does because no. it's uh, it's his only film. Yeah. Uh, his only feature film. He made a couple of short films before that, and then he committed suicide very shortly afterwards, apparently due to a disagreement with the producers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is it due to, or is it just kind That's of part of the larger picture that was? Um, I mean, it, it sounds like the film itself is about depression yeah um so i i I don't think he was like a happy-go-lucky guy and then he made this movie and no (laughs) no i mean it's based on it's based on a short story from uh, a novel that he wrote uh Mm. called huge crack i Mm -hmm. think which is the name of the novel there's there's a collection of short stories and from the sounds of it it's uh it's very much like a lot of the films that the kind of we spoke about before about the sixth generation of chinese filmmakers uh, which kind of uh, has a, a deep kind of economic concern. Well, and so what I had heard about this film before we programmed it, and it was one that I had kind of thrown out to to the programming committee as like something that we might want to show, is that this director was, um, his short was kind of mentored by Bellatar, the Hungarian filmmaker, and... Um, and you know, Bellatar is known for making these really long. You know, this, he's kind of like a one of the major slow cinema filmmakers. And this film is about four hours long. Yes. So it's hard to program something like that because you end up using up two film slots. But I also think it's why it's really important that we do screen it because it is a movie that's gotten a lot of really positive reviews at awards at festivals but you know these movies find i have a harder time getting distribution and i feel like that's kind of what metro's here for is kind of like these you know there's kind of these movies that you feel like oh i would never get the opportunity to see that in a theater 
and like we're giving you that opportunity and I think like people you know we're actually really used to sitting and watching four hours of something now because people more marathon like I bet a bunch of people did that with Stranger Things in the past week watch four hours of Stranger Things or more well I guess I don't know how how it's different with that but it feels different just because it's episodic well it's very different because television is structured to be like every hour here's a cliffhanger and yeah. it's it's very manipulative and yeah. it's it's like it can make you watch that long it doesn't mean we have longer attention spans. It just means that we're very easily manipulative. If anything, it means we probably have shorter attention spans. Yeah. yeah. But so I, that's why I think it's like kind of an interesting experience to go into a movie that's not doing that and like, you know, um, to challenge yourself to like really immerse yourself in something like that. Yeah. I think it is a challenging thing to uh, to expect people. Well, not I guess that's a strange way of saying it, but to expect people to sit through a four-hour film because it isn't something which uh, people are generally used to doing in a theater. Having said that, people have no issue sitting through three hours of the Avengers. Yeah. But then again, that's like a, that's a very sort of. It's not challenging. It's not challenging in the same way. It's not. Uh, I know that from the, I guess, like aesthetically speaking, one thing it does also share in common with the a lot of the sixth generation filmmakers is that there's lots of long takes, mm-hmm. but that it's also quite a frenetic film. So there's lots of um, uh, there's lots of very kind of invasive camera work on uh, you know a lot of the characters in the film. So it feels very. Um, almost like first person it's like they, they're very claustrophobic for the people in it what was the one we showed last month that had the the hour long uh, oh, yeah. take oh, at the end of it long day journey tonight, mm-hmm. long day, long day journey guns, tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean I'm quite a fan of these sort of really carefully composed um, you know long takes that, mm-hmm. that rely on the camera work to sort of um, push the narrative along as opposed to different cuts and we spoke about this as well last time mm-hmm. um, so I think it's going to be an interesting one I have one more thought, and this is this is I have known very little about the film or the filmmaker, mm. but it's just interesting when a film is released posthumously, mm-hmm. um, if people kind of attach. I mean, obviously it has more meaning, but if people read the film in such a way that you know it comes across as more important right. because this person has already died, um, and I I look again I knew nothing before right now but now I'm very curious to go see it now. it's tough to ask people when when a film is generally thought of as like an entertainment medium like come sit through four hours of people being depressed fair but I also it's interesting like I'm reading um, this graphic novel building stories right now by Chris Ware and it's just this kind of mammoth collection of different um, stories that are all um, the same couple of characters who live in the same apartment building and it is about depression like it's very like kind of people kind of going through the same cycles of um, you know very mundane things in their life and it's completely engaging and um, not in any way like misery porn it's you know it's mm-hmm. it's um, very it for me as someone who doesn't deal with depression I think it's very um, it's uh, it's expanding my ability to empathize with people in that situation. So. Yeah, I mean, I think like here there is, you say like movies are predominantly like a mode of entertainment. And I think that's like our obligation is like a small art house cinema is to like screen films that maybe don't necessarily adhere to that kind of style of filmmaking. Like, because I think there's a real value to these films. Like you talk about Balatar and like Satin Tango, which is like mm-hmm. seven hours long. Yeah. And like, yeah, no one's going to, you know, 
ask their friends around and be like, yo, let's have a peachy Saturday Arvo and like watch Set and Tango. But like, you know. No one here is going to ask anybody for a peachy Saturday Arvo. (laughs) But you know, like. Where do you think you are? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I come from a different hemisphere. Um, But no, I think like screening films like this is important. And I think as like film goers, like challenging yourself to sit through something that's this, maybe not tedious, but like, I don't think that's an unfair word. Mm-hmm. Nope. No, right. Yeah. But that doesn't have to be bad. Exactly. It doesn't have to imply bad. Yeah, because I think you can take like genuine value out of it that you wouldn't get from any other movie-going experience. For films like that, I think it's important to watch them in theaters, at least for me. I know that I often would, like, you know, at home, choose not to watch a film like that. Or if I tried, I would I would lose it, lose the thread very quickly. But mm-hmm. in, a, in a cinema, I'm, I'm glued to the screen. And then... And then by the end, I'm like, usually, I mean, obviously not always, but I'm usually feel rewarded at the end for sticking through it and end up loving and enjoying lots of films Mm -hmm. like that, that are challenging in length and tedium and boring. (laughs) No, there's, no, 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 it was just, I remember there's an article about like on the art of boredom in film and how, I forget who wrote it, I'm sorry, it's a terrible example, but just how it's not bad to be bored, like. We're yeah. so we're so obsessed with not being bored that being yeah. bored is almost like challenging your senses in a way. Well, yeah, I mean, watching these movies, it's it's okay to let your mind wander and wander and think about stuff. And mm. I think the more you do watch movies that have that kind of pacing, the actually the harder it is to watch movies that are really fast paced and when, where you feel like you don't have the space to. I'll disagree with that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fair. Hobbs and Shaw. August August second. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not playing in the metro. <laughs> An elephant sitting still is screening on August fifth. Yeah, that's just, just is that the Monday. is that the only screening we have? Or that is, is just because, because the one, yeah, because, because of how long it is. Long so it is. mark your calendars. Don't um, hang out with your family on the holiday. Just no, come and yeah. don't go to any of those festivals that are going on. <laughs> no way. <laughs> This episode of Close Up is brought to you by ATB. Acceptance everywhere starts with acceptance here. With representation across Alberta, including rural communities, ATB's internal LGBTA network is working to transform ATB into the place to work for LGBTQ plus team members and allies. Through engagement, outreach and education, they're building a diverse and inclusive workplace where all ATBers are free to be their authentic selves. ATB takes pride in all Albertans. This means standing up for what is right in the workplace, in our communities and alongside community partners including Firefly and Schools, Calgary Library's Reading and Royalty Program, Edmonton and Calgary Pride and the Calgary Sexual Health Centre. ATB believes pride is a stance for love, diversity and self-worth. It's a stance for acceptance in our workplace, in the communities we serve and with its community partners. ATB is a proud partner of Calgary and Edmonton Pride and the Pride Mastercard is also now available, accepted everywhere. Go to atb.com forward slash pride to find out more. Joining me once again is Maggie Hardy, who so far has, over the last few months, been talking to me about her four-instalment curatorial Silent Sundays. Uh, this time, though, she's here to talk about 
a uh, Pierre Paolo Pasolini short retrospective, which starts with Abel Ferrara's 2014 film Pasolini, uh, which is a kaleidoscopic dramatization of the filmmaker's last day uh, before his death in 1975. As well as that, we've also got the last in Pasolini's trilogy of life in Arabian Nights and also the gospel according to St. Matthew. So Maggie, I know this isn't necessarily a normal curatorial in that it isn't recurring or anything like that, and it's also not really even a retrospective, but explain your involvement with it and why you're kind of attached to it. Well, in the programming committee meetings, we often talk about the give and take of programming and the idea that uh, the more mainstream things should really only be played to eke out a better place for the more artistic, to things that better fulfill our mandate to more artistic film uh, and cinema as art. So, you know, for every time we do Shazam and Detective Pikachu, yes, we should be doing <laughs> Russian masters or great Canadian films of the 1960s or what yeah. have you. So the Pasolini kind of came out of that. Uh, I discussed it briefly a few times because this year was actually the 50th anniversary of two of my favorite films of his, Porcile and Medea. He was so prolific that actually many of his films are falling into good anniversaries this year. So Gospel is in its 55th and Arabian Nights is in its 45th. And it's the fifth anniversary of the Abel Ferreira biopic too. So okay. just happenstance, really. I spoke to Dylan Rees-Howard about the Cassavetes, another short uh, retrospective that's happening in June. Yes. Is this going to be a kind of like a recurring thing that we're going to try and focus on, on some small uh, area of a filmmaker's work of that kind of stature? I think that it might it would certainly be a nice supplement to regular programming and i think it's easier on a lot of people to have these small kind of bite-sized packages like ready to go you know if i said let's do cronenberg or adam egoyan and i had three films right off the top of my head packaged rights ready to go if there's like a dead spot in november or something it's a great time to unleash that I mean, the trilogy of life, I suppose, beyond Salo is probably the thing he's best known for. Yeah. Uh, so it's good that we're kind of like focusing on at least part of that. Yes. Is there a reason you chose the last one as as the? Uh, well, I mean, screen? part of it is being a bit cheeky towards Disney and their recent release of their new Aladdin. <laughs> and I mean. Part of it, too, is I think it's just a a great, overlooked, in many ways, film. Uh, Certainly out of the trilogy of life, it does not have the cachet, perhaps, of Canterbury Tales or the Decameron. Um, I mean, and even from the work it's based on, there aren't that many retellings, and certainly none quite as good as Pasolini's, as far as adaptational work of the thousand and one nights flower of the arabian nights is the best yeah like bar, bar none and i mean it won the 1974 cons grand prix it's a solid film it's interesting and as well the gospel according to saint matthew this is from 10 years prior, prior yes yeah honestly gospel according to saint matthew is a film which transcends the pasolini canon it's a film which is 
so much more than what it appears. It's the only case where I'll agree with the Catholic Church. I really do think it is an amazing, astounding film and one of few masterworks of cinema. Uh, they regard it as the greatest film ever made, I think. They is, do. Uh, specifically, and yeah. I mean, there there's a lot of little pieces of it that are ridiculously important to to modern filmmaking like the fact that he mostly cast unknowns mm -hmm. villagers and, and non-actors uh which, cast his own mother yeah as mary <laughs> yes yeah. and the idea of jesus as a revolutionary figure i think is always interesting mm -hmm. Um, especially compared and contrasted to like sad sack Jesus of uh, Last Temptation of the Christ. He's, um, he's a miserable one. Yes. And that passion lad. Oh, <laughs> yeah. goodness. Which, funnily enough, stars Willem Dafoe, who stars as Pasolini and Abel Ferreira's Pasolini. That was the uh, unintentional tie-in. <laughs> yeah. Go Gospel According to St. Matthew is, is just a, a stunningly beautiful, sensitive film. There's not a ton of movies that I say everyone should see this, but like that's the kind of movie, if you've got a kid over 12, take them to it. If you've got a grandparent who hasn't gone to the cinema in years, take them to it. Like, it, it's really a masterwork. That is a, a sound endorsement. Also worth noting, the film had no script. Yes, <laughs> sometimes you can tell. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was like a one-page treatment and yeah. you end up with half an hour of nonsense. Um, but I mean, it, it is pretty much, it uses the Bible verbatim. Uh, you can tell there isn't really a script, and yet, just a really beautiful film. And of course, the other film we're showing is, as we mentioned, Abel Ferrara's Pasolini. Yeah, I do think it's kind of funny that they cast Willem Dafoe because uh, Pasolini was actually a very handsome man and looks much more like Viggo Mortensen than... Willem Dafoe. He does. He has uh, very sort of dashing uh, Italian chiseled, model yeah. good looks, plus um, those fantastic sunglasses. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I will admit it's a film I have not seen, but I've always been pleasantly surprised with Abel Ferreira's films. I was lucky enough to play Miss 45 some years ago in Metro Bizarro, uh, so it's nice that I can play another one of his features. And while it did get initially mixed reviews, there was a recent retrospective in New York of all of Abel Ferreira's films, and hindsight being 2020, it got astounding reviews. People really seemed to love it five years down the line. So I'm hoping that audiences in Edmonton get a chance to, to watch it and enjoy it. Yeah, me too. No, I've not seen it. Um, and to be honest, I hadn't even heard of it until uh, earlier today. So I'm quite excited to see it. And I will watch pretty much anything with Willem Dafoe in it. So just so everybody knows, that is... Uh, so we've got Pasolini starts on Monday the 26th at 7 o'clock. And then Arabian Nights is the following day, the 27th, at 9.30. And we have Pasolini again on Wednesday the 28th at 9.30. And then the Gospel according to St. Matthew at 6.45 on Thursday 29th. Are you going to be doing uh, introductions for all of these? Uh, I'll probably be doing introductions, yes. I think that's uh, yeah, it adds a nice dimension to it. And uh, I think in the case of retrospectives, it gives it a bit of context. Yes. People, it sometimes you know, explains why we're not just randomly showing, you know, some old films. Uh, although there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I, I always like doing the intros and it's, uh, 
it's nice for me to be able to say, you know, this is what this film was, This, these are some facts about it, and I really hope that you like it. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Maggie, thank you very much for coming in. And uh, check out metrocinema.org for more details on that, and uh, we'll see you there. Okay, well, moving on to The Art of Self-Defense, which is another new one. Uh, again, sort of like uh, cultivating a bit of interest. It's directed by Riley Stern, so also directed Faults, and it stars Jesse Eisenberg in his kind of familiar, uncomfortable, awkward, nervous shell. And uh, it is about a... So he's a, he plays a character that is bullied by... a biker gang I believe or something I believe like that he's mugged is he more mugged than bullied is, is so then he goes to self defense classes to, yeah. to learn karate. how to protect karate yeah. uh, <laughs> and is uh, is tutored by Alessandro Nivola is that his name yep mm-hmm. yeah nice yeah so it's, it looks very very darkly comic yeah. not not like give it to me yeah I want <laughs> <laughs> alright <laughs> sure uh, but it sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds tailor-made for uh, for Jesse Eisenberg, who I think is better suited uh, in roles that expose a sense of vulnerability a little bit. Um, it's weird seeing him when he's like Lex, Lex Luthor. Luthor. Yeah. So has anyone heard of this director before? He's just, I'm just uh, looking at his filmography. Riley Stern. The Cub and Faults. There is Riley, there is a slight. I do know a little bit of, of his like backstory as as a person. If that's what we want to talk about, what do you got? He was married to Mary Elizabeth Winstead. That's right. She was in faults. Yeah. Cheated on him with Ewan McGregor, and they then had a very like public fallout divorce. Um, when they were shooting Fargo season three, so all I that's all that's all I know that he's like drama. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that says about this film, but I'm there changing you go. this to Metro presents Goss <laughs> There you go. I mean, that's all. I, that's all I think he's like known for, right? Uh, yeah. He's trying right. to turn it around. I yeah. Got a different reputation. Yeah. There's a very, uh, very there's true. a very good band, and their music is being used in this film, so that's quite exciting. Tell what us the band, band is that? Uh, they're called Full of Hell. They're like a like a grindcore band, so that's very exciting for me. Grindcore. Yeah. Okay. Hates grunge, loves grindcore. <laughs> 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 when is the art of self defense uh, playing? August thirtieth. August thirtieth. Is that another one-timer? That'll be a thing where you need to go to metrocinema.org and find out more details. As with everything, really. Because, yes. yeah. you know, there's a lot, a, lot of, a lot yeah. of what we say may not be true. <laughs> <laughs> or follow it on Instagram. Can we do that? Twitter? Are we on Instagram? <laughs> oh, are you, can. Uh, Salisha, are you filming us? Is that happening? Are you doing this? Behind-the-scenes videos? A behind-the-scenes video. I took a short one, but I haven't done any since that one. Okay. Well, when you do it, make sure that we're saying something intelligent. Yes, I don't want us looking like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll just I came right from work, so if anyone sees the video and is, why is he dirty? I'm from work. <laughs> Since I found out about the Alberta Podcast Network, I've been eager to talk to the hosts of some of the other film-related shows out there in the ether. As it happens... Northwest Fest is a regular annual feature at Metro Cinema, and the production coordinator of said festival is also the host of a show called Emily Missed Out. Her name is Brianne Byrne, and she's sat opposite me right now with her partner in podcrime, Emily Devereaux. Woohoo! Hello, Welcome. hello. Thank hello. you. Thank you. Uh, so, first off, tell me a bit about yourselves that I have. I've just done a very brief. Uh, 
Tell us more. <laughs> Brienne, would you like to start? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, Emily and I are our co-workers. We met working for a glass blowing studio here in the city. Wow, okay. Uh, we've been working together for... Five years? Five years. Yeah. And a lot of the office conversations that included movie lines ended with Emily being like... Me? What? <laughs> and we're missing it completely. So when the opportunity to try and start a podcast came up, we thought maybe we would try and go over some of the films that Emily's missed. And we're not like super, we haven't gone super far back. Yeah. Um, we're focusing mostly on pop culture relevance. Yeah. It's so like a lot of 80s and 90s, a yeah. little bit, a little bit of early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's basically just like my pop culture education, all the stuff that I missed out on or not. Which uh, Is there a reason that you've missed these films because of, you know, you're from a different generation or is it just because um, you just didn't watch them? It's a, it's a little bit an age thing yeah. and it's a, a lot. I just don't watch stuff unless people watch stuff with me. Okay. Um, like for years people were like oh like you need to watch Star Wars and are like you haven't watched Star Wars yet I'll watch Star Wars with you but like Brienne's the one who actually like sat me down and actually watched Star Wars with me and so yeah. yeah she's my my partner in movie education now well excellent we're trying we're trying it out some of the movies don't land so well but that's okay still getting the references I've out of seen, that for sure yeah I've had a look at the list yeah and there's a few good ones on there <laughs> some you could have missed out and you'd have been fine yeah, I there's a couple where I'm like, mm, I'm like, I didn't really need to see that, but yeah. it does add to my lexicon of of stuff that I now understand when people reference it. What's so been that's great. What's been the biggest dud so far? That's a good. Qu- I think Sixteen Candles, honestly, is probably one of them. It which was we're going to so, talk a I'm bit about so today. That I ch- so the show <laughs> that basically describes the show, which is uh, your kind of relationship, and the show is an extension of that. Yeah. I thought it'd be fun to have you guys on and I'd watch a film from your list that I hadn't seen (laughs) and then I'd give you a film that maybe you hadn't seen and we could kind of like you know re uh, reimagine the show on my show <laughs> yes for sure so i chose 16 candles cuz i hadn't seen it i had no idea what it was i thought that it was like a rom-com uh, I didn't know anything about it. I knew it was John Hughes. And uh, I, I chose Gummo for you. <laughs> like two very different movies. Very different yeah. films. I did that on purpose because okay. I know that it's a challenging film for a lot of people. And it's, it was also my staff pick. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of Harmony Kareen. How did that go? We made it about five minutes in before I messaged you the first time. <coughs> yep. And then I think we made it another 25 before I messaged you the second time and was like, we can't, we can't I, I timed it. It was yeah. 38 minutes. Was it? That's exactly how far you made it. Okay. And, uh, well, maybe in, unless you stuck around. You missed some 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 classic vignettes after that. But I do understand uh, there's lots of reasons to have turned it off before that, apart from cat flaying. Oh, I will tell you that the cats weren't real. Yeah. Yes, we yes. did see that. Yeah. I, we did. I listened to another, like a few other podcasts, or people discussing because I did want to know what we were missing. So right, in this yeah. case, Emily and I both missed out, <laughs> and we're hoping that you can fill us in. I did check out some of the um, more popular scenes and stuff like mm-hmm. that that we didn't get to. But yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, it's it's set in a place called Xenia, Ohio, mm-hmm. but it's shot in uh, in Nashville, which is where Harmony Korine is from. And I think what the point of the film was to deconstruct narrative. He didn't want it. To, uh, there was a great interview he did with uh, David Letterman 
um, where he asked him about the construct of the film and he said, I wanted it to have a beginning, a middle and an end, just not in that order. <laughs> uh, and that's very much how the film plays out. It doesn't seem to, it doesn't really have an arc that you can attach yourself to. It is a very fractured look at um, this very strange landscape, which is a part of America that we don't often see, which is again, which is a great kind of opposition to something like 16 Candles. Um, <laughs> because he wants to show you the truth. Yeah. And he's a, 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 a kind of a keen advocate of uh, Harmony Kareem's early on was, was uh, Werner Herzog, mm. who's a great filmmaker, yeah. one of my absolute favourites. And uh, he always believed in this thing called ecstatic truth, like a sort of exacerbation of it in mm. some way. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, that's okay. what these films are. It's not that he is an advocate of the behaviours in the film. Because you just see the scene between the two brothers where one of them is asking for, for the other one's shoes and they just start beating each other up. No. No, yeah, okay. we did. Yeah, the one, it's in the kitchen. Yeah. And they oh. just start like punching each other yeah, and you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, those guys are actually And they are actually other. doing it. I didn't realize it was over shoes. Oh, yeah, she's yeah, like, no, oh, no. give me your shoes. It's, yeah. But then it's it sort of turns into this other territory entirely. There's there's something so real about it. I really feel like I'm seeing something that's, uh, it, I feel like I'm watching a documentary by yeah, myself where that I'm not. Yeah, feel like a it documentary. Feel that way, yeah. And I, I think that is a big reason of why I was so uncomfortable is yeah. I'm like, this all feels very real and like just yeah. very yeah disturbing yeah yeah i'm just like oh yeah. like what's the what's the point of this movie i'm like there's lots of people mumbling that i don't understand <laughs> and like i'm not following what's happening it's very uncomfortable it's just yeah it was an experience for there's sure a lot of yeah. uh, there's a lot of strange things he's a big fan of using uh non-actors in fact he's done that in all of his films uh even i think up to as far as the beach bomb which is the most recent film he made uh, spring breakers features a lot of non-actors as well julian donkey boy actually starred uh, Werner Herzog plus I think Chloe Sevigny was in that as I think she's in well. a few of them I was reading I knew she was in kids but oh uh, yeah she's in that's a Larry Clark but of course he wrote yeah, yeah. kids when he was 19 so he just has a very kind of hyperactive imagination and he has a really uh, there's a sort of a dreamlike quality to the film and also something very very gritty and real and that's a very strange thing to have uh, in one place Agreed. Um, yeah. And I think part of the reason why it is so sort of chaotic as well is that uh, it was set in a town uh, the story at least where a, a, a tornado had taken place mm -hmm. so he wanted it to sort of represent the aftermath the destruction of that and that's why the, the it seems to just fly all over the place and, and things don't make sense and sometimes there's moments of deep sincerity but also horrific realism as well the the, the character that I don't know if you got this far but pimps out his uh, yeah. sister who has Down syndrome yes. to the two yeah. children there's a lot to take <laughs> however yes 16 candles <laughs> how far did you did you did watch you all watch of it yeah. i made it through the whole <laughs> congratulations. thing congratulations uh yesterday morning yes so let's talk about john hughes's uh classic celebration of racism and date rape <laughs> yeah which yeah. i i honestly yeah, yeah. i genuinely had no idea what i was walking into mm -hmm. i have seen a, f a few others i've seen uh, uh breakfast club and yeah. um uh, ferris bueller and and uh, i forget what else he's made now i'm sure that it will come to me in a minute and breakfast club i remember uh, in particular, finding it very distasteful that Ali Sheedy was sort of turned from the person she is in the person into the person she should be. It's like watching a sort of dystopian nightmare. Yeah, his films yeah. are just like what? What <laughs> if white people could do it right? This is how they do it. <laughs> Absolutely no alternative culture of any kind. Yeah. Everyone's the same, and it's just. But this film is just spectacular. I can't believe how popular it is. And for the time that it's made, 1984, yeah. that's not that long ago. I didn't need the Me Too movement or Time's Up to know that that sort of behavior was not acceptable. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so it kind of is amazing. Like the first thing that really struck me are the underpants. 
<laughs> that they're sort of flashed around like some sort of victory sash. Yeah. The main the male lead, the Jake character. Yes. We are, are we supposed to sympathise with this person in any way? <laughs> Does he not pawn off his drunk girlfriend to a child who has no yeah. driving oh, license? yes, and that whole scene is awful. Yeah, for it's being the lead, it was, yeah. Just spectacular. Yeah. I, I find, I, I don't know, I, I'm not a huge John Hughes fan, so I kind of knew that walking in, and that was uh, probably uh, unfair of me to, to expect to find something else in it, but I didn't quite expect to find, uh, to find what I did. The use of the gong whenever oh, the, yes. uh, the, I don't yeah. want to say his name, partly because I can't remember it, but also because... <laughs> It's just so offensive. It is weird to think about how Sixteen Candles used to be a funny movie. That it is strange, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It used to be a funny movie, and I hadn't seen it in I don't know fifteen years <laughs> when we watched it. Right. It was, yeah. It was, yeah. Different to see it with like today's eyes for sure. So what's next for Emily Mistel? I should ask you. Have you got? Uh, is, it, is it is it weekly or is it a monthly thing? Or it's uh, bi-weekly it's now. It's bi-weekly. Every, okay. every other week. Uh, we actually have a bit of a fun episode coming up because we're actually doing a Brienne missed out. Yeah. Ooh. It's actually a film that Emily has seen that I have not. <laughs> what is what is it? Uh, Frozen. Frozen. The the like the animated yes. thing. <laughs> Are you allowed to veto anything or is it like entirely the person's <laughs> choice? No, we can definitely veto. I, okay. I, there's no point in making Emily watch something she doesn't want to watch. Like, that would be terrible. Yeah. Um, Not like I did. No. no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, Brienne doesn't bit, watch yeah, a lot of the like Disney stuff or animation. No. So no. in order to find a Brienne missed out pick, uh, yeah, we had to go in that direction. So Brienne's going to learn all about... <laughs> Letting, Letting it go. go. That's all I know that comes and out of that film. Olaf, the snowman. Right. Yeah, I kind of try and get Emily to guess what the film is about based on what she might have heard in her. That's right. Yeah. In okay. Random conversation. Yeah. So, what do you think Frozen's about? I really don't know. <laughs> Just I have know. a stab. You know about Olaf the Snow? I've never seen it, so you could say anything. I've got no idea. I all I can assume is it's probably a Disney princess. I like that I get to know what's going know, on, right? and you two don't, because you've been talking about a lot of stuff. Where I'm like, I don't know what that is. So. <laughs> yes, Brienne missed out. Let's do it. Thank you so much for and, coming. And welcome to the Alberta Podcast Network. Welcome to the Network. Alberta Podcast Yay. Network. Yay. Happy Yay. to have you. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for putting up with my uh, questionable suggestion. <laughs> and thank you very little uh, for pointing me in the direction of 16 Candles. <laughs> Even though you didn't. It was me. It was but it was choice. the only one on your list that I hadn't seen. Yeah, I was going to ask if, so you, if that was the only one. Yeah, it was. the only one. Hey. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for that. <laughs> no problem. Um, uh, but you should have yeah. waited a couple more weeks. You could have watched Frozen instead. Oh, that's true. No. No. <laughs> no, I, I, no I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, where do people go? What's the address for people to go to to find all of this stuff? Albertapodcastnetwork.com and emilymissedout.com. Thank you for coming. Thanks awesome. for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us My and letting pleasure. us pet your cat. Yes. <laughs> Always a bonus. Yeah, where is she? We liked Audrey. She's very much alive. She's like, I ate now. I can leave. Okay. <laughs> Close Up is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which hosts a wonderful range of homegrown content, from film, pop culture and the arts, to sports, education and politics. You can find podcasts of all shapes and sizes at albertapodcastnetwork.com. So, Grindcore, Nick. Yeah. 
Let's talk about hype. Okay. <laughs> not at all about grindcore. It's got nothing Damn to do with grindcore, <laughs> but it's got something to do with music. Yeah, it's, uh, that's what it's, I was going it's for. It's the next in the uh, Music Docs series, uh, and it is about the, uh, the mid-80s to mid-90s grunge scene in the US of A, which mainly started in Seattle. And So this is the second film know. we're talking about that deals with suicide, or has a suicide element oh. to it. I suppose, yeah. I suppose <laughs> That's it does. fun for summer. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to, to shape the the episode so that we're kind of like moving up into oh, more nice. in more sort of uh, right, right. jovial territory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, nice. So we're getting the the, the moody the kind of like did, will come we're later. saving that <laughs> saving that for the end. Uh, so yeah, hype. Uh, how does everyone feel about grunge music for a start? Who's old enough to even remember it? I'm Not looking me. at you, Will. I existed post grunge era. You're post grunge. I believe so. <laughs> so I think a lot of the bands that sort of initiated that movement were uh, far too much, uh, you know, um, expectation was, was heaped on them. Hence the name Hype. Yeah. And uh, they could never live up to it. And of course, a lot of it came as well uh, on the back of the success of, uh, of Nirvana. Yeah. Uh, and so as soon as they became big, there was a whole thing. Let's sign a whole bunch of bands that sound a bit like them. And the whole thing imploded within 10 years or so. Yeah, I like. I feel like Nirvana is just one of these bands, kind of similar. I don't know where, like, almost like the Beatles or something. Where I feel like I, I can't really have a strong personal opinion about them because they were just so omnipresent in my mm-hmm. childhood that mm-hmm. I just, you, I never got a chance to discover yeah. them. Um, so yeah, like. I just don't know how I feel about grunge, yeah. to be honest. Like, I know I don't like Pearl Jam. Yeah. I, I don't that. like I think, Eddie Vedder. I think it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm no music historian, but like, you know, let's say mid 80s punk dying out, at least as a form of like a cultural movement. Mm-hmm. Like, and this kind of springs up and it's in its void. And while I, I don't have any, like, I think that's an interesting aspect to talk about. Um, and like, when grunge dies, what fills that void, right? People that take the best parts of something and manage to turn it into something which is extremely relatable. I mean, you know, grunge was always something which is very subversive uh, and kind of resentful. If you ever watch yeah. interviews with, with, with uh, you know, uh, like, you know, Nirvana or Mudhoney or early Pearl Jam, mm-hmm. uh, wherever else is on the list there, there's, all of them seem to resent the idea of being a celebrity in any way at all. Yeah. It's very hard for a movement like that to remain marginal because they're always going to be as soon as as soon as it's it's a recognized interest there's going to be somebody waiting to capitalize on it, I think. Grunge as a music genre is interesting because if you think about it it's also probably the last like musical movement before the internet was omnipresent. No, that's very true. Yeah, mid, so, like, mid again, mid 90s. I have yeah. no no like firm thoughts on what that means as a the way that people digest pop culture has completely changed it's uh, the immediacy of things has affected massively the propulsion of certain yeah. art forms or just how quickly like a movement like that turns over Hype is the directorial debut of Doug Prey, who went on to make Scratch, Big Rig and Surfwise and features interviews and performances from a whole range of artists that were central to the grunge movement, including Tad, Mudhoney, Nirvana, Soundgarden, Coffin Break, The Gits, Love Battery, Flop, The Melvins, Some Velvet, Sidewalk, Mono Men, Super Sucker, Zip Gun, Seaweed, Pearl Dram, Seven Year Bitch, Hovercraft, Gas Huffer, and Fastbacks. It screens on Tuesday, August 6th at 7pm, and details about live pre-show music can be found at metrocinema.org in the coming week or two. 
Friday, August 9th, sees the next screening from Dead Femme Exhumed, curated by Lacey Page. And this time it's going to be one of her very favourites in Amy Holden Jones's Slumber Party Massacre from 1982. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome Lacey back to the podcast to have a little chat about that. So Lacey, welcome and thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've mentioned this one on here previously as a, a film of uh, some significance to you. So given that you're a fan and an aficionado of horror, how does Slumber Party Massacre fit into your consideration of the genre and uh, film as a whole? I would say, um, well, first and foremost, Slumber Party Massacre was one of the first titles that I came up with in my initial list of movies that I would ideally want to show at Dead Fam. So that was three years ago, 2016, when we kicked off Dead Fam at uh, Dead Fest's uh, presentation of The Love Witch. So unfortunately, it did take me three years to actually acquire the rights, thanks okay. to uh, Pete at Metro for getting us the rights to show Slumber Party Massacre. But yeah, I just think it's a really great film in terms of um, it's interesting because it did kind of come out um, early in the slasher era. So obviously the 80s slasher movies were at the height of the horror genre and kind of revolutionized it in a way. Um, and I guess a lot of people probably don't know that Slumber Party Massacre was actually written by a woman, Rita Mae Brown. She mm -hmm. was the screenwriter behind the movie and directed by, at the time, she went by Amy Jones. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and she actually, I believe her husband at the time, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he produced the movie as well. So, yeah, I just think it's a really great um, example of really terribly awesome slasher movies from the 80s. Yep. And interestingly, it's really um, not, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty misogynistic, let's be honest, and which I think is interesting because it was directed by a woman. So, yeah, it's just uh, it's a really good addition to horror movies made by women. Um, yeah, so as you said, it was uh, written by Rita May, Rita May Brown, uh, but she wrote it as a parody of slasher movies and then when the screenplay was shown to producers it was filmed i'm not sure how much amy holden jones had to do with this probably very little really um that it was uh it was filmed as a more serious kind of straight-laced slasher film if there is such a thing so the result is this kind of very weird mixture of unintentional and intentional comedy if you can imagine it being written as a sort of a parody it is really funny Definitely. And I mean, one of the, the key things that this sounds really weird saying, but one of the things that I find makes that movie particularly memorable is like the the excessive female nudity, <laughs> particularly in the shower scene, like early in the movie before the slumber party and all that. Mm -hmm. But I'm just like, it's shot so like sensually. And I'm just like, that's Again, I don't think Amy Holden Jones identifies as bisexual and she, obviously she's been married to men. So I think that's a really interesting, like, um, you know, choice on mm. her part on how it was shot. But uh, yeah, it is interesting how it is kind of a parody of the slasher subgenre because it's so like it's kind of a shell. Like, you know that there's this escaped, like, mental patient, which that was such a huge staple of slasher movies. Um, one that comes to mind for me is Splatter University, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it came out in 1985. Um, but yeah, just, you know, you have this really, really vague story about this escaped lunatic and, like, 
why the hell is he wearing so much denim? And why is he wielding this giant drill? Like, it's so, it's typical of a slasher movie. Like, you have some good slasher movies where, you know, there's a really, there's so much uh, potential for a good story. But obviously, like, if you look at Halloween, there is a story there, but it's, you know, if you watch all of the sequels, it's pretty disjointed. There's a lot of like random stuff throughout and stuff, but there's more of a story there. And then you watch Slumber Party Massacre and you kind of see how, again, it's almost like a shadow of a slasher movie in a way. Um, I also learned that Amy Holden Jones was uh, an editor that wanted to be a director. And apparently she was given a choice. I'm not sure how this kind of played out, but the way that I read it was that she was given a choice between um, directing this or editing E.T. And she chose this. She must have known that it wasn't going to be as big a success as something that was attached to a name like Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. And I think that says a lot about um, just progressing women as, you know, filmmakers, directors, writers, producers. You know, obviously... I feel as though any filmmaker, male or female, you know, if their ultimate goal as a filmmaker is to direct their own work, they're obviously, you know, if they're given the option, are you going to edit this huge Steven Spielberg movie that went on to be a cult classic? Mm. Or are you going to make your your own little B-budget slasher movie that, you know, it obviously never gained the momentum that E.T. did, obviously. No. But, you know, it, it has a pretty solid cult following. So. No, yeah. For those that know, it's a, it's a cult film in its own right, as opposed to E.T., which is now just a sort of family staple. Yeah, exactly. So I think she made the right choice. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, cheers to Amy Holden-Jones for making that choice, because whether big or small, she did make a leap towards rising women in uh, film. So good for her. Absolutely. Is this going to be, is this the last in this sort of run of, of Dead Femme? Or have you got another thing kind of lined up after this? I know, I know it's uh, it's early days, but... Yeah, so this will be our last film in what I've kind of coined Dead Femme Exhumed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, second rendition of Dead Femme um, that we brought back after about a year hiatus, six month hiatus, more or less. Um, so yeah, we will be starting a new, uh, series run, probably just go back to the title of Dead Femme for this one. And I believe it will be beginning either somewhere between October and December. So the first slot of the season usually falls in early November or December, but, uh, we've talked about doing some other things. I don't think it's going to pan out for this year, um, in terms of like a film festival and things in October, but you never know anything could happen. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, we will be coming back for a third season and uh, it will be bi-monthly as it has been the last few years here. And we definitely have a, a vast list of movies we would love to show. But again, it comes down to acquiring the screening rights and just seeing, seeing what's available. So um, I do have some ideas for things that I want to kind of screen in the immediate future. Mm-hmm. But I also want to take into consideration like the the ways that we can be making these events more engaging. So if I can acquire a movie where I know right away that the the director, writer, producer is available to, you know, do a Q&A or contribute in some way, then, you know, we're going to take that into consideration in terms of like how we're curating the program moving forward with it. So. Uh, 
I should mention, where can people listen to the Dead Fan podcast? And I've asked this before, but it's good to keep, keep it in, uh, fresh in people's minds. Yeah, for sure. So Dead Fam Radio is our podcast we're now doing. We've so far only done two episodes, but we're as it stands available on Podbean. Um, we are, again, looking to branch out and do more with the podcast. It's just a matter of, you know, we're a voluntary committee of film fans and, you know, we all have day jobs and whatnot. So hard to coordinate these things, but uh, look forward to more episodes. And for now, you can listen to the first two on Podbean. I can attest it takes a lot of work and time and patience. Yes. But uh, we're on Podbean as well. Yeah, it does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It drives you mental. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. In a good way. Though. In a, in a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in a productive way. <laughs> so far. Yeah. But yes, Friday, August 9th at 9.30. Yes. Wear your best pajamas. Lacey, thank you very much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me again. No problem. Let's move on to another film, The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. Directed by W.D. Richter, who co-wrote Big Trouble in Little China and also adapted the screenplay for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78 version with uh, Donald Sutherland Sutherland doing the face. Also with Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Jeff Goldblum is in uh, Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai, as is Peter Weller and Ellen Barkin. Has anyone, uh, so you heard about it? Yeah, I'm surprised that it, well, I know a lot of people who hold this film really dear in their hearts. Like it has a um, kind of uh, cemented cult status. And I know a lot of people who just can watch it over and over again. But yeah, I also feel like it might be one of those movies that's of its time where maybe seeing it for the first time many years later, it might not have quite the same I did. Uh, I did actually watch it earlier today, and it reminded me quite a lot of a film like *The Visitor*, uh, right. which is one that we showed for the cinema of psychedelia. Where it's it's kind of like it's very packed, full of cross genre, you know, markers. There's lots of amazing renditions of what the future might look like, and I love the the, the use of technology and sound effects in it, and the music is fantastic as well. And to be honest, quite a lot of the acting is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a lot of films that you could say to the, about them afterwards. It must have made more sense on paper. Right. This one can't have made any sense on paper. <laughs> it's fun. Okay. Mm. It was actually not, not that badly received at the time. But it's not highbrow in the slightest. No. Uh, so it's... I've always assumed it was something like more like, like a Repo Man's, like in that like uh, yeah. that kind of world of cult film where, yeah, it's totally ridiculous and, you know, low budget sci-fi kind of thing. It's definitely very low budget. But Repo Man is brilliant. Yes. <laughs> it's not, I suppose, aesthetically not entirely uh, uh, dissimilar to something like Barbarella. Okay. Which, again, if you describe it to someone, it sounds fantastical. But then when you see it, it's like, well, it's just a guy in an alien suit. Right. right. And uh, there's, there's no attempt to disguise any of that at oh, all. I have a question. Yes. Is it trying to be genuine or is it intentionally... Silly. Silly. Well, there's a lot of clear attempts at humour written into it. It's not completely disregarding its own uh, That's the sense worth. I've always gotten from it's it. Like it's self-aware. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, as it's correctly pronounced, tells the story of polymath Dr. Buckaroo Banzai, physicist, neurosurgeon, test pilot, and rock musician, as he tries to save the world by defeating a band of interdimensional aliens called Red Lectoids from Planet 10. It stars Peter Weller, Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, and Christopher Lloyd, and it is a fine slice of convoluted 80s sci-fi adventure pie. Uh, It screens on Sunday... 
August 25th at 9pm. And Metro is a licensed venue, which may help with regard to absorbing the inexplicable silliness of John Lithgow's Dr. Emilio Lizardo approach, but do so with a sense of humour. Okay, so one of our excellent regular features at Metro is, of course, the Edmonton Fringe Festival, which is also the founding member of the Association of Fringe Festivals in Canada. Joining me now is Delia Barnett, who has been involved with Fringe for at least a decade, possibly more, depending on memory. And she's here to talk about her current crop of shows for August. So, Delia, welcome. Hello. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, so, uh, first of all, how did you get involved with uh, with Fringe? Oh, um, I guess my first Fringe experience in general uh, was years ago. One of my friends had written this play that was sort of like a reimagining of a Commedia dell'arte play. And we went to the London Fringe, which was my first ever Fringe experience. Um, and I'm not sure exactly when that was. I want to say like 2005 or 2006. Um, but the Edmonton Fringe, um, I moved here to Edmonton for school. I was in U of A's BFA acting program. Okay. And my first summer here, I wanted to do a fringe show and so I got asked to be part of this like crazy show called anime uh, that was this really neat show that involved so many artists it was at New City when it was still downtown and huge and it was like this crazy wild experience and then uh, since then I've just been kind of hooked and have done it every year in just different aspects Sun and the Girls is my theater company. So our whole mandate is to tell historical women's stories using burlesque. And uh, we use burlesque uh, not just as like a fun way to do shows, but also uh, the act of stripping bears a way to also like present characters and stories and have it not always like body reveals, but sometimes story reveals. And, uh, and yeah, we did um, With Glowing Hearts, which was a show about historical Canadian women. So, as I remember, it was a burlesque show with a kind of narrative that was woven into the songs and you were telling a story about women in Canada at the same time. It was actually one of, the, one of my favourite shows from, uh, from last year. It was great. Oh, no it was way. A pleasure to do uh, multiple times, as is the case when you're uh, taking shows at a singular venue. So it's nice when you, we, we get ones that we can uh, enjoy uh, repeatedly. And it's also nice to do shows where there's a lot that's kind of asked of us as well. So even just musical cues, it's nice to be part of it in some way. Now, I know you've got a couple of other shows, not just at Metro. Yes, uh, I'm doing four shows this year. Okay. Um, so I guess the Metro show, the one that will be over at the Garneau, is Sending the Girls Again, and we're doing Take It Off Broadway, uh, which started as me just joking around in rehearsal. <laughs> uh, being like, yeah, let's do a show about Broadway. We'll call it Take Get off Broadway. Okay. And then um, Send and the Girls was lucky enough that we got picked up to do four shows this year at Fort Edmonton Park in their theater. And they wanted new works. And so I, off the top of my head, was just like, oh, yeah, we have this great show called Take It Off Broadway. And then I had to call everyone in Send and the Girls and be like, so <laughs> that joke, it's real now and we're doing it. Yeah. So we performed a version of it in February and then are changing it. We have to take out the intermission. So it's actually harder to do at the fringe and uh, and had a cast member have to change out so we have some switch arounds happening and then we're doing it's all celebrating the women who have done Broadway and have done amazing things in Broadway and have won awards and done different things and some of them got their accolades and some of them um, unfortunately ignored and it's all sort of like classic 
Broadway. So um, it's a lot of like singing in the rain, guys and dolls. Mm -hmm. So if you like big fancy costumes and big sweeping numbers, it's filled with those. When we were putting together the song list and everyone was like picking their solos, we're like, wow, there's everyone is just doing like show-stopping number after show-stopping number. So it's kind of a crazy fun show. Yeah. And then I also learned, because we do the cell block tango in the show, and I also learned that maybe a seven and a half minute number is not a great idea, but <laughs> not a great idea for the poor performers that have to rehearse it. Like yeah. it was so hard to learn. And our choreographer, Leah Patterson's really brilliant. And she used a lot of choreography from like the actual Broadway version and the movie. So it was a lot of work and very hard to learn, but it's one of my favorite numbers we've ever done. And it's really cool. And everyone gets to be really individual and be their own sort of murderous character, which is really fun. Uh, then the other shows I'm doing, I'm doing, I do a show with uh, two dueling pianos called Burlesque Dueling Divas. Uh, and we've run the last two years out of El Cortez. And then this year we're running out of Spotlight and we're doing a show about music royalty okay. and how people who came from humble beginnings and against all odds became musical superstars. So the sort of message of that show is follow your dreams, put the work in and who knows what will happen. So it's celebrating Elvis and Queen and a bunch of other wonderful performers. And then I am also doing Dynasty, the improvised soap opera, which I've been lucky to be a cast member the last couple of years of over at the Varscona. And I don't know what character I'm going to play yet because we always do Fringe as the theme. Mm -hmm. uh, last year I played Stephanie Wolf, who's one of my favorite uh, fellow performers on Dynasty. I played her biggest fan and uh, and head of the Wolf Pack, her fan <laughs> club, and just was really ridiculous all summer long about that. Had yeah. to call her and be like, Stephanie, I think I want to play your fan. Is that too weird? Because <laughs> you can say no. And she's like, only if you make fun of me. And I was like, okay, great. Will do. Uh, and then I'm doing a show at Kids Fringe, which is this free area that people can bring their children to. And there's all sorts of different like performances that happen there, face painting, circus workshops for children, all sorts of things. And I do a show called Just Kidding, where I build a play in 30 minutes using kids from the audience and the ideas from like the entire audience. And at the end of the 30 minutes, we perform a brand new original work wow. live at the end of the show. That sounds and so amazing. That's all I'm doing. While I've got you here, what are some of the shows that you're actually just looking forward to seeing this year? It's coming back this year, and I saw it last year, Josephine the Play. It's a one-woman show about Josephine Baker. Oh, wow. And okay. it's by this woman, uh, Tamisha Harris, from, I believe she lives in Florida. She used to be the assistant choreographer of NSYNC. It is, I saw it last year, and I'm going to go see it again. It is one of the best shows I have ever seen in my life. I am such a big fan of her. I saw her do a little piece at actually the late night cabaret was the first time I saw her last year and I dorkily ran up to her afterwards and be like hi I'm a burlesque dancer too do you want to come see my show I'll give you a comp and she's like I already have tickets for tomorrow I'll see you then and then I just like felt just so like my body just like crunched in nerves and she was so nice and actually burlesque divas is having a different guest every single show to do a dance and Tamisha's coming on to do two of the shows so I am both starstruck and really nervous to have her there so that's one of the shows I'm really excited about I actually really like speaking of shows at the Garneau mm -hmm. I really like um, the, the TEDx RFT as I understand it Julian is on his way here now oh great yeah I know Julian quite well he mm -hmm. actually hosts a lot of burlesque shows okay as uh, Professor Eugene Oregon that's right and uh, 
Hilariously, also, we do a show called Clue every November in Edmonton, and he is the detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing a switch around, so actually I get to have a lot of time with him this year in the show, because usually I would play Ms. White, the maid, but this year I'm Ms. Body, the victim. Wow. So my ghost will help him solve this mystery. That's fantastic. I'm going to I'm gonna get him to fill in on some of the other things, hopefully not the same things that you've uh, talked mm. about. They can't be. Thank you very much. Thank you. So in pure fringe style, as Delia leaves, Julian arrives. Julian, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I'm um, sure. My name's Julian Fade. I'm with Rapid Fire Theatre and uh, TEDx RFT, the improvised TED Talk. And yeah, the turnover was quick between Delia and I. She was out, I was in, and, and off we go. Perfect. Spoke very, very briefly about TEDx just a minute ago because I was asking Delia to uh, name some of her favorite shows. That's yeah. nice of her. But TEDx is actually a favorite. And uh, we had, a, we had, I don't know how many times we showed it last year, but it was it was great. We had one of the ones that filled out the auditorium pretty much every time. Yeah, we did eight last year. Eight shows. Yeah, right? which okay. was arguably too many. Um, <laughs> so we've, we're doing six this year. Okay. And uh, yeah, if you, a little description of it is, as the name implies, it's an improvised TED Talk. I make the other performer slides, who in this case is Corey Matthewson. He makes my slides, mm-hmm. and we do that all pre-show. We don't see those slides until we present them live on stage uh, while we get topics from the audience as well, which we have to sort of incorporate the slides that don't make sense with the topic we get from the audience and deliver a, um, you know, educational and entertaining TED Talk in front of the audience. Is there some kind of limitations that you impose on each other? It's a good question. So we have, we've done it, we've done it about 50 plus times now. Mm -hmm. And when we first started, it was like, just throw as many random things on the screen as we possibly can. And we found it was just too difficult. We needed to uh, sort of curtail that a little bit. So one of the things we do is, for example, it's 15 slides total. Um, we number those slides uh, just so that we can have a sense when we're, you know, we're doing the performance that we're how close we are to the end. Yeah. Um, or you know how much longer we might have uh, potentially. The other thing is uh, animations within Keynote are very um, tricky. They can be very fun to have multiple animations throughout one slide, but. But, for example, at the very end, the last slide, if you have multiple animations, you don't know when you're actually ending. So it makes it hard for the audience to like get this kind of nice sort of bookend on yeah. the show. And so we, one of the rules we have is like no animations in the last slide. Okay. So it's just things that we've learned that make it a better show overall. Other than that, it's pretty much like go at it. You begin to learn the tendencies of the other performer a little bit and what they want to build. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, I build my slides to be very uh, aesthetically pleasing. For example, Corey uh, doesn't. Uh, <laughs> his are very, uh, in my opinion, kind of slapped slap together. But it's kind of has a nice um, yin and yang to it a little bit. The audience likes watching that. I sort of feel like I've given some care to Corey in this presentation, and he's done the exact opposite and just yeah. trying to mess with me. So, yeah. To use sort of a sports analogy, it is a lot of like just taking big swings and sometimes you connect and it's a home run and sometimes you connect and it, it dribbles you know three or four feet and that's okay because yeah. they're both really funny yeah uh, it is about making a big choice committing to that idea and like running with it and yeah sometimes as i say it connects and other times it doesn't and sometimes it falls in between and that's uh, that's sort of the the nature of the beast so yeah it's fun that is the beauty of fringe Yes, especially of, of, of improv in general. It's it's nice for us. I mean, I think improv, there's lots of it, and you can see why, sort of from a financial you know, perspective, it makes sense. There's not as many weeks of rehearsal, but mm-hmm. I've been doing it almost 20 years. And so there's definitely you know some, some experience involved. And for us, with this being an improv show, there is still some sort of rehearsal in the sense that building those slides 
each one takes about two plus hours. And so, well, it's not a huge amount um, compared to a rehearsal process for a typical fringe show. There's still like lots of work to be done prior. So I think I would get caught in between trying to make it as bad for the other person and bearing in mind as well, you, you are together. This has to be the show is a whole. Right. Uh, it's not like you're in competition. No, there's an element of that. Yeah, uh, that we're trying to mess with each other a little bit. But yeah. you've, you've hit on something really important. That in improv, there's there's like there's when you're doing performances with other improvisers, sort of more typical what you might be used to watching improv. There's some performers who are like all about the jokes, mm-hmm. and that's great. And there's some performers who are sort of all about forwarding the action or, or giving offers, and that's also great. What you can't have is just like one person only doing jokes. That's all they're going to give. They're not ever ever relenting. It's just like joke, 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 joke. Because the audience goes like, okay, where's the story going? What is this about? Yeah. Let other people talk. And so when we're building these slides, or at least in my mind, I, I, I want to give an equal dose of offers uh, that he can sort of have fun with and jokes that are uh, that are funny on the by them by themselves. And so that's kind of the balance. So it can't be too you know, hilarious and out there because it becomes too difficult, but it also can't just be totally boring slide, slides after slide after slide. Yeah. Because then there's nothing for him to have fun with. So um, it's a delicate balance that way. And it, the hardest thing for me is just like coming up with new ideas because when, especially when you're, we usually build one, you know, in, in a month if we're doing a show, if we've done it that many times. But when we had to build eight, it was like, okay, I guess this one's going to be about fashion vaguely and this <laughs> one will be about candy vaguely and, yeah. and you start you know googling things and looking on the internet and you find some weird wormholes that you follow and uh you end up with some weird sort of loosely connected stuff throw it all on the screen make sure it, it flows properly and, and hope for the best so. i suppose as, as an improv show it kind of lends itself to uh the way that we kind of uh, engage ourselves with the internet in particular it's it's like you're able to hit on some very current um topical themes you know you're kind of capturing a, a bit of a zeitgeist every single time you approach it which Absolutely. is really interesting yeah it, it's it's been our, our one of our, our, our producer Lana Cuthbertson has, has sort of said about it it's like surfing the internet with your friends yes uh, it's it's like oh I remember seeing that gif and oh yeah that's a funny reference to this thing mm. and you know sometimes the references fall flat either for the audience or for the performer like there's so much going on that I don't know um, no, Corey doesn't know that, or in a slide deck about candy, I put a picture of Sugar Ray, and that's a reference <laughs> that he should get. But he doesn't know who Sugar Ray is, or doesn't notice right. that it's the photo. But that's also funny because the audience goes, "That's Sugar Ray. Why won't he get it?" <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, like, pulling my hair out on the side of the stage, going, yeah. like, "Come on, get it!" And he and he doesn't, and that's still funny. Yeah. So, really, it is all about just committing to those ideas and, and having fun with it. So, yeah, it is. There is definitely some sort of pop culture stuff, and when we run it for uh, corporate clients, for example, often it's a um, uh, conferences so yeah. we might do like a, a parks and rec conference or something and there's lots of like fun things to sort of tease out about those elements and so same thing sort of applies i can't imagine it being performed for any other audience than a fringe audience that <laughs> sounds very strange it's very strange for them uh well and for us it's very strange for everyone involved but you know yeah. we, you do things for money and uh <laughs> that's that's what that is yeah i do stuff for money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah all the time yeah so last year i remember seeing you hosting the midnight cabaret Yes. Are you doing that again this year? Late Night Cabaret, yes I am. Uh, that runs like nine of the ten nights of the Fringe, I think it is, or, yeah. or nine of the eleven, or eight of the eleven. Anyway, um, it's every night at midnight at the Backstage Theatre, just where the sort of train, uh, the, the, the trolley stops right yeah. there. And it's super fun. It's the Late it Night is. Fringe show. I have a very good time with that. I've been doing that for, I think it's this is my tenth year of that, I think. I'll be doing, I don't know, probably f- four of the 
nine shows or six of the nine shows, something like that. Anyway, it's, it's rapid fire people and former rapid fire people, and it's in it's a co-production with the French Theater Adventures and yeah. Catch the Keys Productions, and it's it's just like organized chaos, live band, six people. Yeah, it's awesome. It's super fun. It's definitely worth checking out for you know post fringe audiences if you've had a if you've had a bit to drink. Oh yeah, that's the place and, to go. And, and there's a bar and yeah. there's tickets for artists, so artists can come and sort of hang out. We'd like to make it a bit of a hangout spot for sure. Yeah, it's one of those things where you don't really know what's going to happen. And, and there's lots of throwbacks. We used to have um, way back in the day that are you know as you can imagine them sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night shows weren't as oversold as we might hope. And so they instituted sort of traditions like Wednesday is no naked night. And that has uh, stuck around for what some might argue is far too long. Uh, <laughs> and others would vehemently deny that. Yeah. Uh, so Wednesday is Naked Night, and that's always a fun time. But yeah, it's a great show. That's also worth checking out. So that's pretty much my fringe is, is uh, Omar the Garno, Six of the Days, and then I'm at the like, Backstage Theater, Six of the Days. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a great time. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, so is, uh, are there any shows in particular that you're excited about seeing this year? You know what? New? Honestly, the Garno venue is, or the Metro Cinema venue is going to be in, insane this yeah. year again with uh, with yours and Delia's sending the girls yeah. uh, the boylesque TO yeah. Colin Mockery and friends uh, Colin Mockery we've got Scottish Drag Queen again oh, is Mike Delmont coming back yep. oh my god um, you have all the big hits so we do I mean, and for a 500 seat theatre we it fills out every well, single time. I was chatting to people about this before. It's 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 the the economy of the fringe is so interesting because sellouts look great on paper, and, and mm-hmm. I, I say unless that paper is a financial statement, because otherwise you've left money on the table. And so the Garno is a unique venue in the sense that you have to be able to fill at least a couple hundred seats. Yeah. If you have fifty seats in there, it's a it's cavernous. Um, but if you can get two, three, four hundred people in a room, even for a couple of those shows. Suddenly, the possibilities are are uh, are. I shouldn't say endless. I'm sure they're they're no, there's, an end to there's it, an end. But, yeah, but we have yet to find it. That's for sure. Julian, I'm going to have to uh, curb it there. It's I think, too long. It's too long already. It's already too I'm going to have to edit this down to a minute. We could what? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, you should have told me. I'll improvise. Okay. But thank you very much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you. And uh, I'll see you there. I look forward to it. So perhaps in a similar vein to the adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai, Piranha, directed by Joe Dante and produced by Roger Corman, was uh, part of a series of B-movies or a Piranha series. It was inspired by Jaws, and it was kind of like a sort of schlocky remake of that. I have seen the remake Piranha 3D and Piranha Double D, but <laughs> 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 not the original. How is it? <laughs> It's not good. No? No. A bunch of little tiny fish nibbling on people, or are they big fish? No, they're small. Oh, okay. Small fish. Big uh, teeth relatively to their bodies. The rather beautiful poster suggests that it's a giant piranha. I think think it's just a ripoff of the Jaws poster. Yeah. I don't think the film is actually... one giant piranha. Mm-hmm. But it was a giant shark. It did but how about. did the, the piranha get so big then? At the shark, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how do, do people have any feelings about Ro- Roger Corman? I mean, he just made all types of exploitation films. Like every single kind you can name. Sex ones, Death violence Race, ones, yeah, car ones. The, li- yeah. the original Little Shop of Horrors, mm-hmm. Bucket of Blood. So I think you have some idea of what to expect if you're familiar at all with Roger Corman. Silly. There's probably some nudity in it. <laughs> Thanks for the warning. <laughs> also, I looked it up. So there's one giant piranha poster. Thousands of baby piranhas. Regular piranhas that the uh, regular piranha. Military. Well, they're not regular. They're military hybrids that are somehow accidentally released. 
Into a river. Oops. <laughs> it's in a river. It's not even in the ocean. That's oh wow. Uh, okay. A river used by a children's in, holiday in, camp. In the remake, wow. it's like a it's like a stripper <laughs> water park. Is it what? Sorry, a stripper yeah, water park. That's a thing. Of course, it's a thing. <laughs> I want to see that one. <laughs> Been, uh, there's a few that have been added. Actually, with the Goonies, we've got Detective, Detective Pikachu. Pikachu. Detective Pikachu. That's a delightful movie. Is it now? It's hilarious and cute. Listen, it's, Owen, it's about Pokemon. It's great. It's, it's okay. hilarious and cute. Is it? Are you a Pokemon fan? Yeah. Yeah. I was when I was a kid, and it's like it's very nostalgic for even someone my age. Yeah. I didn't go see it with any children. <laughs> 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 Honestly, Tola good. and I have been meaning to see that. It's really for a good. While it's now, like so. okay, obviously it's a family film, but it's a great family film. Uh, it's just also we're playing Dogman, which is yeah. uh, from the director of Gamora. Oh yeah, Matteo, so the Italian guy, Garone. Matteo Garone. Is yeah. that his new film? Yeah, yeah. I hear it's yeah. absolutely incredible. Oh. I hear it's like burn down the building. Yeah, should I think have probably spent more time really talking about that. It won, that. like, uh, Best Actor at Cannes, I believe. So when I was at film school, one morning we were watching Rashomon. Yes. Yeah. Are you sure? A guy turned up late <laughs> and he went, Rashomon. Was that, like, Pokemon with bacon? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he didn't fail at life, but he certainly failed at university. What else there? Midnight Cowboy, that's a 50th anniversary screening. Yeah. Paris is Burning, which is going to be uh, a, a homicidal screening on Sunday the 4th at 9.30. Always come to those because they are a laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, also think, like, homicidal, the, the drag show will be a laugh, but the film, I think, is actually pretty brilliant. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, pretty it's important pretty cool. yeah. and, like, film. yeah. Just a few of the other picks we didn't have time to get through today were Ron Howard's documentary about global superstar and operatic tenor Pavarotti, which plays August 3rd and 5th. Carmine Street Guitars from Canadian director Ron Mann documenting the long-running New York establishment which specializes in completely custom-made guitars using preserved and repurposed wood salvaged from historic New York buildings. That one runs for two shows as well on August 10th and 14th. John Huston's classic neo-western The Treasure of the Sierra Madre starring Humphrey Bogart makes up our Sunday Classics installment on August the 11th and we bookend August with two stone-cold Coen Brothers classics on August 1st at 9.30 we have our food bank film Fargo which is admission by donation bring your non-perishables help somebody out and on August 31st get the White Russians in it's the Big Lebowski at 9.30 however you're listening to this though don't forget we can find a number of ways either click on the podcast tab on the Metro Cinema website you can also search for Metro Cinema Presents Close Up on Mixcloud.com download and subscribe on Spotify Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Podbean Breaker Stitcher Pocket Casts and Radio Public and of course we're now on the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB for everything else go to metrocinema.org for more details but otherwise thank you very much for coming William thanks mate Nicholas come to trivia Heather yo Talisha bye and uh, we'll see you in the lobby bye